to 1.37 p.m.'s Live from the Bar Cart. A look into the style, culture, strength, and grind of the modern-day man. Carl Banks, welcome to Live from the Bar Cart. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me. This Very excited fun. to talk to you. A man of many talents and great accomplishments. Uh, really excited to hear all about it. Um, obviously, you're known for being... Uh, two-time Super Bowl champion and a mm-hmm. pro NFL player, defensive uh, defensive lineman, linebacker, linebacker. Yeah, um, which could be doubled as a defensive right. lineman every once in a while. For sure, yeah, I so. played. I was a defensive tackle in high school, not okay. like anywhere near your aspirations. I was a defensive tackle and yeah. offensive tackle in high school. Yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> so yeah, let's start there. Tell me a little bit about uh, growing up in Michigan and playing football for Michigan State. Yeah, I grew up in Flint, Michigan, a uh, little town. Uh, called a community called Beecher, um, graduating class of about a hundred people. Wow! Uh, but we were good, really good, really good. State champions in track. You know, they probably still win, and it's a dirt track. We never had a real track. Uh, basketball. I was an all-state basketball player. I was a all-state football player. Had no idea I was going to take the path that I took. Um, I thought I was going to be a basketball player. Really? I got, yeah. I had, um, going you definitely into, got the height for it. Yeah. Well, I was good, but then there was Magic Johnson good. You know what I mean? <laughs> so, um, but I do owe a lot of my success to Magic Johnson uh-huh. because um, I met him at his basketball camp. Um, and I was going into my senior year. Taught me a lot. We became uh, friends. And... When it was time for me to decide whether it's going to be basketball or football, most of the big schools were recruiting me for my athleticism, but not as a basketball player, but as a football player without a position. So my head coach told me uh, in high school, your future is going to be in football. And he broke my heart (laughs) (laughs) because I really wanted to play basketball. I was pretty good. Uh Uh, But. You know, after coming from camp with uh, Magic Johnson that summer, and he was a point guard, and wow. I was six five, six four, and he's six eight, six nine, and so it just kind of became a reality. The realization came that I wasn't going to be a basketball player, but I was going to be a football player, um, and I was highly recruited, but I didn't have a position. I was two hundred and twelve pounds, and I was an offensive lineman and a defensive lineman. So all the football coaches would come to watch me play basketball and project whether I was going to be a tight end or a linebacker or whatever. Um, I was a pretty good football player but didn't really know how good um, relative to the rest of the world. Um, But I played in the Big Ten. I was all Big Ten three years in a row, the first non-kicker in the history of Michigan State to do that. Um, Ended up becoming an All-American. Still didn't know how good I was. I never got invited to the Combine, or any of the major all-star games. George Perlis told me, he says, listen, you're good enough to be a pro. Um, Why don't you go to this one bowl game, and if you do well there, the pro scouts will be inviting you to the Combine. They'll invite you to the Senior Bowl and the Hula Bowl and all this. So I went. It was the blue-gray game in Birmingham, Alabama on Christmas. <laughs> it was cold. I got MVP of the game. I came home and I got every invitation on the men to, to participate. And um, so I went to the NFL Combine and 
you know, I'm looking at all these all these linebackers I had been reading about every summer. I'm like, wow, there's Wilbur Marshall, there's Jackie Ship, Jeff Lighting, you know, Texas, Florida, Nebraska, all of these great these guys. And um, I just went and did my thing. And I guess I did it well enough. I was the number three pick in the draft by the Giants, but I had no idea the Giants were going to draft me. Were you nervous on draft night? Nervous? No, I had no expectations. No, no, I thought I was good enough to play, and um, the Giants never showed any interest in me. And uh, so I was in my coach's office. He says, "Come over, let's you know see what the draft is going to be like." And the phone rang. I was literally here's a trivia question: the number one pick in that draft on draft day was me. Really? Mm-hmm. Wow. Um, Dean Steinkiller and Urban Fryer had signed early. So on draft day, I was the first player taken. <laughs> so it's a, a bit of trivia. But, um, no, I had no idea I was going to be the third-round pick. I had knew nothing about the New York Giants. And so uh, when I got drafted, it was uh, like, okay, they have some linebackers. Oh, wait. And at this time, the Giants Lawrence weren't Taylor. like this huge team yet. They were- no, but they had, they had the world's greatest linebacker. Um, and so it was like, wait a minute, there's Lawrence Taylor, there's Harry Carson, obviously we know both of those guys in the Hall of Fame, Brad Van Pelt, who I grew up watching from elementary school all the way through college, he was there, and he was Mr., he was my Jim Thorpe uh, growing up in Michigan, and then um, Brian Kelly, so they had like four all-pro linebackers, and when I got to the Giants, Harry Carson looked at me and said, so what the hell are you going to do to get on the football field? So, you Tell me a little bit about that. So, you know, I would love to hear about the dynamic when you – the hierarchy of a team when you, you're you a rookie, you're new, you're coming into this professional team, like yeah. you mentioned all these amazing athletes. Like, what does that feel like? What, and he says, how do you get yourself on the field, you know, because obviously not everyone starts. He said it arrogantly too, you know, because he knew they were good. They were like the best linebacking group in football probably outside of the Steelers at that time. Um, and he wasn't happy that I was drafted because they were a close-knit group. So I was drafted. Gary Reasons was drafted. But, you know, I went over to introduce myself on the first day. And when he said that, I was just kind of like, oh, okay. You know, because I wasn't going to be intimidated. Obviously, uh, you know, we were – like I said, it goes back to my Flint roots. We, we, you know, we didn't never, never felt inferior to anyone, even though we were a small town. Um, so I, I guess I'm gonna have to prove it. You know, I had a few fights in practice um, early on, but I think they, they realized I was a pretty good football player and um, eventually accepted me before the season started. And then you got in with them. Well, I didn't get in. I just. Yeah, I guess. I, you won the I wasn't campaigning right. to be <laughs> to be in the club, but you got to earn it. It's one of those deals where you got to earn your way in anyway. Absolutely. I mean, I think there's a whole thing about mindset there. And even like, you know, you won two Super Bowls. Mm-hmm. Uh, tell me a little bit about the mindset, the mindset of a of, – of a, a champion? A champion, yeah. I mean, the mindset of you guys are going into this. And, I mean, all, all over your career, really, like we all have that voice in the back of our head that's always telling us you're not good enough. Or you it doubt makes you doubt yourself or makes you question yourself. How do you silence that voice, you know, and 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 go in there and win a Super Bowl or go in there and and well, I don't know if I had the voice that said I wasn't good enough. 
I think I had a voice that says, I wonder if they think I'm good enough, you know, because again, you know, we, we kind of grew up in an era where we just didn't back down and we were very competitive. So, um, when you're challenged, we just rise. And so, um, being a champion, and I thought I, I, I thought I brought a different element um, to the team, a dynamic to the team um, that was already dominant at what they did. But um, they they called me killer in in high school, and uh, I carried through um, to college and then to the pros. But it was kind of like a killer instinct, you know. Um, dominance to me is seeing your opponent quit right before your eyes. And um, I don't know I don't know if you've ever been in anything competitive and you've actually watched someone quit in front of you. You beat them so bad, they just, you can tell. And it was kind of a thing for us in the 80s, um, especially that the runs we had uh, in 85, 86, all, almost all the way through 90, even though we didn't win we won two Super Bowls, but we were in the playoffs a lot. Um, our big thing was whose guy's going to quit first. And we'd be in, you know, first, second quarter and in the huddle. And, you know, Jim Burt might say, my guy just quit. He's he's done for the day. Um, but it was a big thing for us. Who, who How many guys were going to make quit today? Because, I mean – being an athlete, I think obviously there's the physical demands, but I would say the majority of it is mindset, mental, mental, completely. Yeah. Like, yeah. Um, and like you said, making the other guy work so hard, or you break him so bad that he quits, yeah, right in front of you, yeah. And uh, you know, what does it take to get there? Um, well, it takes focus. Number one, it takes confidence. Um, you've got to be good at what you do. Um, you can't be willing to, you have to be uncompromising in your quest to be great. Um, and if you're challenged, you gotta be up for it. That's the beautiful part about it. And then this is, you know, there's so much mental to it, but the physical aspect of football, I just want you to take into account a little bit of, of the dynamic of both mental and physical. Because when someone's up to the challenge with you or they've been coached up or they're saying, okay, this is going to be tough. I want them to know it's going to be tougher than they expected. You know what I mean? It's just the mindset of, okay, if we're equal, I'm going to do something mentally to let you know I'm just that much better. Or if you're that a little bit better than me, you're going to walk away saying, shit, I don't want to, I don't want to do this anymore. <laughs> Not with this guy. I don't want to go up against this guy. Yeah. Again. Yeah. So, um, but, that all comes from creating your own success and mindset or creating a foundation or developing a foundation for success, uh, doing things that other people are not willing to do, training uh, a little extra, um, studying and understanding the intricacies of your opponent. It's also being uh, being willing to do what you need to do to be the best, you know, so that you don't you don't disappoint the expectation of someone who's ex 
expecting your best. You know what I mean? Right. Um, you want, when they walk away, if they don't say it to you, they're gonna say, you know what? This guy's pretty good, you know? Um, it's not like he was good some of the time. You know, I think the mark of a champion is being good all the time. Being good when you're expected to be and being good when you're not expected to be. You know, that's the consistency. Um, personally, I always use the term, when you peel back the layers, this is who I am. What you see, you keep peeling the layers. I'm still the same guy, mm-hmm. you know. I'd love to talk a little bit about uh, the post-football career. You were smart in that you <laughs> pivoted and you knew that you didn't want to be a broke athlete, basically. There's so many stories of athletes who just uh, – lose it all you know and uh you got into uh the fashion industry mm-hmm. uh with your own entrepreneurial mindset talk to me a little bit about uh about that um did you realize like hey i can only play this sport for so long yeah well physically you know you can only keep you, up for so long if you um think back to what i originally said i didn't have any expectations as an athlete you know i didn't know how good i was so every step I took was just kind of a bonus. So I, I my passion was, and forgive the pun, but but fashion, right? So being in New York, and like I said, coming from um, Michigan, the Detroit area, there was all we we were we loved to dress, right? So I had this this thing I wanted to create clothes right and it was more fashion stuff at the time um, so I found a sample house on 39th street or something I used to make these really cool leather jackets and then I decided wait, what if I did like NFL leather jackets nobody was doing that and at the same time um, David Beckerman the owner of Starter was just getting into NFL sideline apparel. And um, he signed me as one of his early spokespeople or brand ambassadors. I don't know what they call them now. Um, so I got an understanding of what the culture of sports licensing and, and lifestyle branding was about. Um, so I spent a lot of time with him. He was great. Um, he understood sport. He understood what it meant to brand it, um, to be able to transport the the passion of the fan into a tangible um, item so they can wear their fandom, right? So the satin jacket became the biggest, still the most fashionable piece. You saw it on everybody from John Gotti to Run DMC, you know, um, and so that jacket was so iconic, but, but Starter became the brand before there was Nike on field. It was Starter. Well, and, for sports brands, yeah. Yeah, it was uh, from college to every pro team, every uh, pro sport, every championship they were a part of. And so I learned a lot from those guys. But simultaneously, I was just in my second year uh, with the Giants, and I said I want to get into this fashion thing. And so um, as I was developing these these cool leather jackets for me and my teammates like Pepper Johnson, 
We had a, a furrier that did some stuff for us. And I said, I want to develop leather jackets. Nobody's doing leather jackets for sports leagues. So I developed the sample line, and I went to the NFL um, and said, hey, I want to do NFL leather jackets. And I, you know, I created the whole sample line. I didn't take a design class, but I could obviously communicate what I wanted uh, to people that, that could sketch and design. I can sketch a little bit. Um, and so I created this line, I think, seven jackets. And NFL thought it was interesting, right? This is like before anybody had done anything about yeah. it like this. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, uh, nowadays it's almost it's almost a given that fashion and sports kind of intersect and there's so much branding and so much sure. being created. And, and the fact that you thought of this beforehand and you kind of right. like, it's, it's, uh, it's a lot to say. Right, so, and this was my vision. I wanted to be David Beckerman when I grew up, point blank. And I thought my... I thought my entree into the business sports of sports licensing was through leather jackets, and it was. Um, NFL thought it was a great idea, so they gave me the rights to big and tall suede-only jackets. You know, it was like almost like they were giving me obstacles to see <laughs> if I could actually do it, right? Um, and. NBA gave me big and tall everything. And Foot Locker gave me my first order. So Foot Locker was the company that says, okay, we have a customer that was um, big and tall. So I sold some suede jackets to them. And I think Sal LaRocca at NBA gave me a license for big and tall apparel because they didn't have it. And it's a big and tall league, right? So I did some moderate business, but it grew um, to a point to where the NFL says, listen, um, we like what you're doing, but we like collecting royalties too. So if you could find a bigger uh, partnership, it would be awesome. Uh, so my partner at the time who has since deceased, uh, it was in the label and tag business. He and I met because we had season tickets to the Knicks and we sat next to each other for years and I didn't know what he did. <clears throat> and then we finally kind of exchanged information. He's like, I sell, um, I sell labels to everybody. So I know some people I can introduce you to. So he introduced me to uh, the CEO of G3 Apparel and they were the number one leather manufacturer in the world. Now, I just didn't want to be in leather uh, apparel. I wanted to be everything in sports. But I thought it was a great opportunity. He didn't want to be in partnership with an athlete. So my first two meetings with him were, you know, you're not going to show up for meetings. You're probably going to get in trouble. Why should I do this? My father entrusted me with this business, and I'm not going to tear it down um, because you're – not gonna represent yourself well or me and I think on the fourth meeting he decided okay I'll give this a try um, you convinced him yeah um, and then at the same time we got in business together um, and he could make leather jackets that's he could do those in his sleep that's what he did and he had a great distribution network so um, now my business went to the next phase and at the same time, G3's business 
which was at that time a commodities black and brown leather jacket business, was starting to get competition. So what he found out was that branding gives you a little more cachet at retail than just being the next guy who sold you a brown jacket cheaper. So I became sort of a model for what G3 is today. Um, G3 Apparel, if for those who don't know, it's home to Carl Lagerfeld, Calvin Klein, dresses, bags, um, GH Bass, Andrew Mark, Levi's, Tommy Hilfiger, um, lots of brands. And so my model worked for them because now you can command shelf space and you can also command your price. So in the early 80s, in, in heading up mid-80s to the 90s, um, now you have brands. So his first brand, and I was friends with Andy Hilfiger, uh, Tommy Hilfiger's brother. And I introduced them, and he introduced them to Tommy, and so we started doing some stuff for Tommy Hilfiger, and, and then we ended up doing Kenneth Cole. Uh, Nine West was another brand that we did early on. And it just showed that the model at that time was if you got a brand, um, you can get shelf space and, and more preference with retailer and, and consumer. So it kind of became the model for what G3 is today. And obviously, um, we've gone on to do bigger, bigger things and bigger brands. But um, I form that partnership and develop my own area, which G3 Sports by Carl Banks, which I developed into now um, outerwear, activewear, swimwear, men's, ladies. Um, I do Jimmy Fallon's collection, Hands High. I do Alyssa Milano's collection. Um, so it was kind of a really cool thing for me to help my dreams be uh, realized because I had I found someone who had a core competency and we just continued to develop that and the more I developed the more confidence the leagues had in me and it was kind of good for the league too because now you have a player who's doing something that they've shown confidence in and I my biggest thing is I didn't want to let those guys down either like I, I see Sal LaRocca to this day at NBA I say, look, I just want to keep making you guys proud. You know, uh, the NFL, same story. But you, you mentioned a little bit about not wanting to be one of those athlete stories, right? I think the biggest thing I would say to any athlete is develop a skill set outside of football. Um, it's not the worst thing in the world that um, you're done playing football. It's worse when you're done and you have nothing else, no ability to make money. See, that's the thing about it. People identify uh, themselves as this great athlete, but then you don't have a skill set to go out and make more money. And I think, you know, if you talk to any successful person that never plays sports, they'll say, hey, I had a great business. It ran its course. I had a downtime. I had a skill set. I, now I'm in the next business. You hear it all the time. People that have multiple businesses, one goes, the other one goes up. But you got to have the ability to make money. You've got to develop a mindset that you clearly 
develop while playing competitive sports. Because all the things that require, if you were, if you played at the level of high school, there are certain things that are inherent to success in anything you do, because it is discipline, it is um, self-control in some regards, it is uh, confidence-based, it is dealing with adversity. So if you've even played high school sports, you understand those principles. Those are the same principles it takes for you to do this show, uh, for Gary to do what he's doing, and beyond. Um, And if you get to an even higher level, leadership becomes part of that as well. So when you play, if you played in college, if if you're lucky enough to have played a down in pro football, you understand the, um, the importance of teamwork and how the dynamic of team works, leadership. Either you've been led, so you looked up to a leader, or you were a leader and led people. And those are things, if you're gonna own a business or be in one, if you're gonna sell insurance and you gotta, you gotta sell for your supper, you gotta know how to lead, you gotta know how to, to go out and convince people that your product is the one that they should have. Well said. It's 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 a a, a lot of, uh, I think a lot of people think that that you can just half-ass it or mail it in. When I think to find success in that, you need to be all in. It's, you do. You really in. do have to be all in. And I I can tell you, um, you get your ass kicked sometimes. Yeah. You know, um, and it helps that. I was in a competitive sport and I played at a very high level um, because that's when you get back up and you uh, evaluate why you got knocked down and how you could find your way back. So what are you working on right now? What is, what is uh, some of the things that you're focusing on? Well, I have the starter brand, mm-hmm. which you know has come full circle because I wore it when I was a player. I and remember I, and I have when it. I was, when I was exactly. in high school. And so now I have I got that license, and we've been at it for about five years now. Um, and my goal, again, just like when I started as a big and tall suede-only jacket, um, and I grew it into a, a complete uh, sportswear business, my goal with Starter has always been to try to see that back on a field. And I knew my uh, point of entry would probably not be at the NFL level because the shoe companies, um, they have huge marketing budgets. They sell shoes and they the jerseys, by the way, are just something they do for marketing. But they, they, they love to have those rights and those are billion dollar rights. So we're not there yet. Um, and so we do some college stuff, not on the field, but we do college and we do pro apparel, but we're not on field. But the opportunity came with the new um, Alliance of American Football to be the on-field jersey and sideline supplier. So now we're back where it all began. And we are developing some of the most incredible apparel and jerseys, uniforms that you're going to see. And see, that was the other thing about Starter. Starter led uh, in sports fashion. So they were innovative. 
um, in terms of how it looks, how that apparel looks on TV, how it's presented to its fan base. That's why so many fans wanted uh, the product. And so we're designing with that same aesthetic. You're not going to see neon colors, but you're going to see some some really cool stuff that um, fans will be proud to wear and the players will be proud to have it on. Um, and they're going to see why Starter is still a very important brand, um, even in today's pop culture. Where can people find out about it? Um, well, Starter.com. Starter.com. Um, you is it can, available in retail? or It's available at retail all over the all place. Over. Fanatics, uh, which is a, readily available to the world right now, Fanatics.com. Uh, but we are in some of the coolest retail uh, shops. We just launched our Starter Ladies collection as well and so it's interesting um just the way things work out but it's it's fun the journey that i'm on um it's competitive is hell because retail is shrinking my competition uh wants to keep me out so um in business you get your ass kicked every once in a while until you can strategically find a way to not only sustain yourself, but to um, re-energize your business. And, and I've seen that, it, it, it happens all the time. I had, you know, I lost most of my NFL rights one year to Reebok. And that's when we thought, you know, my, my um, CEO came down and says, I'm, I think you're gonna have to close your division down. He's like, it's unfair what Reebok just did to you. They, and he's like, Go to the NFL and tell them you're one of their players and they can't allow a brand to just go. I think, no, we're not playing that card, you know, and he's he's never been in something as competitive as I've been. So I kind of understood how to deal with adversity. And so I said, nope, we're going to be okay." And every day. He come down to my office. I don't know what you're going to do. You're going to have to tell your guys they got to find something. I'm like, no. So what Reebok did, they got all the rights to NFL uh, apparel. And what they did is they put all their competition out of business. But in the process, they warehoused a lot of rights that they didn't want to do. So they didn't make outerwear. They just wanted jerseys and hats, but they wanted to be the only brand Mm -hmm. uh, that sports fans could buy. And again, the only brand at the major sporting goods stores, right? They didn't care about JCPenney. They didn't care about any of the um, department stores or independents because they, you know, they could see the volume with the major sporting goods stores. So they warehoused it. I made my case every time I saw Gary Gersog, the NFL attorney who made that deal with uh, Reebok. I had him hemmed up at a conference one time and I, we were at a cocktail hour and I wouldn't let him leave. I was just giving him the business. And he says, you're not wrong, but we made the deal. So right now I'm trying to figure out, okay, and at that time my business was probably $25, $30 million, trying to figure out where we're gonna, what we're going to do. Well, let's look at what Reebok has done they took everybody's business, but they also took the retailers' 
a portion of their business if they're not going to fill that pipeline. So we created the demand. I said to my guys, go to our sales guys, go to every independent, go to JCPenney, make them important because Reebok doesn't want them important. Make everybody important so that when the distribution network of Reebok sees that their competition right down the block has these beautiful jackets that they used to get, then they'll be the ones to call NFL and say, hey, look, Reebok doesn't make these. Can I buy these G3 jackets? And enough calls came in, and Reebok, they fought tooth and nail. And this is, you know, this is public knowledge, so um, I don't know if Reebok's going to get upset, but um, I doubt it. They're not even in the business, in this uh, part of the business anymore anyway. But um, so many retailers were calling saying, we are not being serviced. And, you know, my outerwear was just one piece of that business. But we became so important. We made those guys feel like, hey, you're it. We're giving you our best stuff. And all the guys that were getting it, you know, that, that now couldn't because Reebok wouldn't service them, they were calling Reebok. They were calling the NFL. They were calling the NBA. Hey, this isn't fair. We can't even sell outerwear anymore because uh, Reebok's not getting and you're not letting G3 sell, sell us jackets. Reebok pushed back for a while and then eventually they relented and started to release some of the rights. So I got back into the business, but strategically, I didn't miss like the $20 million business back then, 30, it was like 25, 30 million. Back then, we made it up with all the other guys who couldn't get the product before. So then guess what happens when those rights get released again and those other retailers that we were selling are now back in business, my business grew. Right. So strategy, right? <laughs> those are things that I would encourage um, anybody that's been competitive, just, you know, you've got to be able to resolve conflict. You've got you've to understand uh, strategy. Think strategically. Yeah. You got anything else for me? I got one final question. So today's episode is brought to you by FanDuel, and uh, we want to talk about risk versus reward. (laughs) I think there's there's no great success without great risk. And I was wondering if you had, and I think you kind of just gave us some, but if you have specific examples or memories where you took a great risk, whether it was in your athletic career, whether it was in your entrepreneurial career, at points where you took a great risk and and, and, uh, faith in yourself and your abilities, and it, it paid off. Hmm. Uh, wow. Um, I would say just my entire journey into fashion because I didn't, I didn't have a, a, any background in it. So I had to risk, um, trusting people and I had some bad partners early on. Um, but I think the reward has been the business that I built now. Um, I've had, and I made some bad deals too. You know, um, I had a licensing deal a couple years ago and I took a risk and I was probably ahead of the, ahead of the curve with it and lost a lot, you know? Um, but the reward is always self-confidence in knowing that the setback is not the 
conclusion of what you want to achieve. It's it's either going to be a learning experience that let you know that you either have to refocus your interest or refocus your energy. And when I say refocus your interest, you know, that's the risk reward thing. And that's kind of the the um, genesis of entrepreneurship, you know, risk reward, interest versus energy. You know, if you, you get if there's something you believe in and it's already out there, but you think you did it better then there's something in the, within what you did that you may have to shift your interest to. If 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 it's not being done, uh, but you're stuck in the same place, then you got to refocus your energy into uh, it's like being a guy who's strong enough, but not fast enough. Mm-hmm. But you just keep lifting weights and not running, <laughs> you know, uh, reshift your energy and, and, and learn how to uh, to run faster. Speed train. Excellent. Carl, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for having me. Is there anywhere you want people to go check out online? Um, well, you've got fanatics.com, you got starter.com, you got alliance or AAF.com. Um, and then I've obviously you can always follow me on Twitter at Carl Bank Carl Banks G I I I like G3. G3. Yeah, it's the same handle Carl Banks G I I I on um, Instagram as well. Great. So follow me. Um, I'm always giving updates. We got some really cool uh, starter collaborations coming up. Um, yeah, we're we're excited. I'm excited um, as the world turns and Excellent. culture shifts. I'll be there. Excellent. Thank you for your time. Thank you, man. Good luck with everything. This is 1.37 p.m. If you want to own the future, start this minute. Live from the Barkhart is a Gallery Media production.